Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Today is Monday, April 5th, 2021. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so, uh, I had a weird experience last night. I, I drove my family home from Chicago to New York and uh and uh made incredible time by the way 11 hours and 40 minutes for anybody who's done this suck it because i beat you like this is amazing time uh for 800 miles anyway so we hit pennsylvania somewhere in the middle of pennsylvania and we realized we can listen to news radio in new york city so we turn on news radio in new york city to hear about traffic or whatever and uh 60 minutes is on the radio at 7 p.m. in New York on WCBS, 8.80 a.m. I haven't watched 60 Minutes in years, so, but I, I listen to it, and the first story on 60 Minutes on the radio is a story about Florida, COVID, and Governor Ron DeSantis. And what was interesting about it, and there was a correspondent, I don't actually know who the correspondent was, but she said, we've been reporting this story for three months. And we've been doing it for three months, and the story, as it, it was laid out, has to do with how at the beginning of the vaccination period, uh, everything was terrible, and uh, and now it's April, and uh, somehow it's still terrible, but they couldn't exactly say why it was still terrible, and what they laid out was a vaccination system in Florida that apparently uh, allowed rich people to get vaccinated, but poor people could not get vaccinated. And it was all set in Palm Beach County, where apparently Palm Beach itself, which has an average income of $70,000, got a 1,000 doses. But West Palm Beach, which has an average income of $28,000, didn't get as many doses until a little later, and, and people were flying in on private planes. Uh, there was no state residency requirement, so things were crazy. And then Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, uh, partnered with Publix, the largest supermarket chain in Florida, for Publix to be the central distribution system, thus an angering county health officials particularly county health official in Palm Beach County and others who wanted to have control of the vaccine distribution. And the whole claim basically in the piece is that Ron DeSantis got $100,000 from Publix for his reelection committee and uh, Publix, um, the nearest Publix to a poor town called the Glades in Palm Beach County was 25 miles from the Glades and poor black people don't have cars and they couldn't get to the Publix 25 miles from the Glades. And and yet then somebody gave Ron DeSantis another $20,000 and then his sister gave his brother $2,000 for $5,000. And um, I am not averse to believing that people do bad things for campaign contributions. I am not, however, partnering with the largest supermarket chain in the state, which I didn't sort of look this up, but I assume if what you needed was were facilities that were closest to the most people 
in the whatever it is 63 counties in florida or 67 counties in florida this would be the best way uh even if there isn't a public supermarket near the glades it's probably near many more people and so there was just this assertion essentially that white people got it black people didn't get it wealthy people got it poor people didn't get it on the basis of absolutely no evidence whatsoever uh except that in the early going uh, 2% of the people who got it in Palm Beach, where there were 1,000 doses, this is out of 1,000 doses, were African-American. Uh, this was maybe the worst uh, investigative journalism story I have ever heard since I didn't watch it. I don't know whether it was more effective li- watching it and that the video made it more emotionally gripping but, I mean, take out the fact that, you know, there's all this history about how people are covering Florida and Ron DeSantis that I know. I feel like if I were watching it, if I had been watching it as a person who had paid very little attention, I would get this vague sense that Ron DeSantis had done something to help a campaign contributor, but how this ended up impacting anybody in Florida was very unclear. Abe. It gets worse because, excuse me, 60 Minutes edited uh, DeSantis' statements on this in such a way that they took out entirely his detailed explanation of how this all came about, which included the fact that before Publix was involved, he had had gotten together with uh, CVS and Walgreens um, to do another kind of sort of private vaccine distribution. Then Publix was the first to be able to say, we can do it in-house. Um, so he tried that on a small trial basis, uh, worked very closely with them, found out that, uh, spoke to people that everyone was very positive about it, and then moved forward. Um, there was nothing weird, uh, 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 unless there's something beyond what, what, what 60 Minutes reported. Everything seems to be completely above board. And as you say, John, it would be crazy to not take up publics on on their willingness and, abil- and ability to do this. That that would be an, an unbelievable act of negligence on the government on the government J- part. Jared Moskowitz, who's the director of the Florida Emergency Management Department, a former legis- Democratic legislator, state legislator, um, said very forcefully that the CBS report is nonsense. That they were recommended to do this by the Florida Health Department. It wasn't Ron DeSantis putting his finger on on the scales here. Um, this wasn't, there wasn't any political payback here. And the, the, you know, the proof is in the tasting because it's been a very effective vaccine rollout in, in Florida to the, in a very egalitarian way, much to the contrast of states that, and cities that have uh, adopted an equity-based approach, which is, you know, providing this to certain privileged groups in the effort to get them vaccinated before, you know, wealthy, rich white people, um, which has just been a halting disaster, as Christine can attest, being the resident of one of those yeah. cities. Um, and, you know, all this is the, the, the contrast that I can't help but avoid you know, internalizing here is that they keep trying to make Florida into New York. They keep trying to make Florida have the kind of disaster that New York had. They keep trying to make Ron DeSantis into the corrupt figure that Andrew Cuomo is, while ignoring the corruption and death in New York. 
Um, and it's it's become conspicuous to a degree that you can't ignore. It's even even in addition to the deceptive editing of the press conference that, that Abe was describing, they they did this weird tabloid journalistic thing in there in the C- CBS presentation where it's like documents obtained, C- you know, especially by CBS. Well, these were publicly available data that anyone can look up with a Google search about campaign contributions. I mean, they, the whole idea of turning this they are literally trying to create a conspiracy, and you can watch them do it in real time and having grown up in Florida, I can tell you, they had to do this in West Palm Beach, where they can make it about race and income, because everywhere else in Florida, Publix is everywhere. It's very easy to find, very easy to get to. Half the birthday cakes I ate growing up came from Publix Bakery. They're pretty well-run stores. They're pretty clean. The The alternative are, are, are chains like Winn-Dixie, Albertsons, which, you remember Albertsons back in the 80s and 90s, they had lots of scandals about food spoiling. I mean, not as good, of, not as well-run a grocery chain. So even from the perspective of Florida residents, I mean, everybody knows Publix. It's it's got pretty good brand loyalty, and they know how to run their own shop. So why not partner with them? As to the private uh, uh, deals with pharmacies, DC is doing that too. Lots of places are making these deals and vaccine available to to private uh, businesses to try to get them into arms. So that's the federal. The federal government partnered yes. with Walgreens and CVS. The exactly. federal government, not just states. The federal government right now in 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 New York. Um, uh, as everything is open, this is one of the reasons the story is crazy that they ran the story. I understand they spent three months on the story. So what? This is the problem with investigative journalism, which is that sometimes your stories don't pan out and you invest a lot of money and then you have to throw them away if you're honest and if you're actually uh, legitimate and if you are not um, you know, serving uh, an ideological or partisan purpose, which I think 60 Minutes has proven itself to have done over the course of the 50 years that it's been in business or 50 plus years it's been in business. So here we have it again. Uh, the point here, one of the reasons that the story is ridiculous and it's ridiculous to do this story on April 4th as they did it is that we are weeks away from there being a vaccine surplus in the United States. That is what we are told by the Biden administration and by everybody else that we are weeks away from a circumstance in which there's going to be more vaccine available than people who want the shots and even now, as my 16-year-old daughter becomes, it becomes possible for my 16-year-old daughter to get the shot in New York State as of tomorrow, there were appointments available at Walgreens and CVS's at the end of this week in New York City. That's when they dropped the eligibility rate from the age of 50 to the age of 16, that's 34 years of shots. And as it happens, you can pretty easily get a get an appointment. In fact, if you try to make an appointment at the state-run places or the city-run places, they're backed up till May. So the multiplicity of the, the addition of the private shot deliverers to the public is one of the reasons that there is going to be a vaccine surplus and uh and and 60 minutes is doing a story on how people can't get the vaccine everybody can get the in about a week everybody can get the vaccine the story is that there is still a large population of people who don't want to get it not that the vaccine rollout is unjust and illegitimate that is a preposterous slander against State officials, you're effectively saying that state officials in the United States want black people to die. 
And, you know, there used to be a time when saying stuff like that was so slanderous and evil that even the worst kind of um, demagogues uh, would avoid going there. And now, of course, it's almost the first refuge of the scoundrel, not the last. Um, and Americans don't need to hear on the on the fourth of April when we're when we're near a point of vaccine uh, surplus that there's a conspiracy to deny vaccine to poor people. And uh, can I just add that in the last week, there have also been multiple stories about cities like D.C., um, which have bungled their rollouts because they've actually embraced the opposite approach, which is it's an equity based uh, uh, system. So we don't really care about public health in terms of who is most at risk for this. They didn't do it really by age. They did it by age and equity. So if you live in a certain zip code and that zip code is predominantly white, you're screwed. You're not getting the vaccine. I got my vaccine on Friday at a CVS because the system in D.C. didn't offer me a shot until, you know, it's going to probably it's going to be this week that it offers me one and I'll have to drive to the other part of town to try to get it. There were plenty of appointments at the CVS and there were lots of people there getting the shots. Many of them whom I talked to had the same experience I did. Like they they want to get the shot and it was impossible because they lived in the wrong zip code. And it was a very diverse group. It was people from all over the city, all races and backgrounds. It was I joked to you guys, it was like a Benetton ad. It was nice to see. But that is because we all stayed up till midnight refreshing our screens to try to get those appointments. It was not because the D.C. system works. And someone in D.C. said the quiet part out loud in Washington Post article that that uh, came out recently where they said it was one of these public health little community groups that was given a whole bunch of doses and they admitted to holding on to them and refusing to give them to people who wanted them because as they said, it'll just be white people who show up. How is that not also equally scandalous in the eyes of Americans? It should be. It's terrible. Sharon Alfonsi, the CB, the 60 Minutes reporter, gave the game away in a similar way in in the piece. So DeSantis did something that other states didn't do that they're do, now doing now. They're doing now. It may be because we're reaching uh, we're reaching vaccine surplus levels, but what what Cuomo did, which is drop age eligibility, right? He did that. He decided to distribute the vaccine by age after ho- after frontline healthcare workers were vaccinated. He then said, "Everybody over sixty five, everybody over fifty five, every like that." He did it by age without any other restrictions. And she, and in the course of the story, she said, DeSantis, in this, in this way, like this story it basically sets up DeSantis as though he is a demonic figure. Uh, DeSantis decided to distribute the vaccine by age and unlike other states, didn't give it to teachers before they gave it to other people. And that's like, oh, really? Oh, okay. So this is now... Not giving it to teachers first is now an act of rich white people injustice. I mean, you know, and and at which point she then cuts to talk about an association that's solely an association based on convenience. A teacher, okay? There's a teacher, and and the teacher says tells a story about how hard it was for her to get an appointment. For her mother, who is in the right category. So she's like, I had my school-issued Chromebook. I had my own laptop. I had my husband's iPad. And I had my own antique iPad. And we 
all four of them were, I was refreshing all four of them over and over and over again just to get my mother an appointment. What does that have to do with the vaccine rollout fairness? Like, the association was, they're not treating teachers fairly somehow. And here's a story of a teacher who's trying to get an appointment for her mother. The hell does it matter whether she's a teacher? She could have been a garbage man. It doesn't matter. Everything is crazy. This this effort to create political narratives out of the vaccine and the distribution and the rollout of the vaccine, which I think you have to adjudge, with the exception of some of these horrible stories like Christine's story, but basically you have to adjudge this as a bipartisan success, right? Trump starts Operation Warp Speed, gets things going, makes these contracts, has these deals, Biden takes over, they accelerate the distribution of the vaccine, they accelerate the this and that and the other thing. It, there was a continuity, not a discontinuity, despite Biden's effort to claim that he was handed garbage and he had to make, you know, he had to make lemon, you know, lemon lemonade out of lemons. It's all actually gone pretty spectacularly well, and we're getting goddamn 60 minutes, the most venerable news program in the United States producing this partisan garbage, the purpose of which is to defame Ron DeSantis and will, in fact, if this goes on much longer, make him president of the United States. Let's talk about that a little bit, like how Republicans like DeSantis increasingly, right? We know this from CPAC, where he came in second to Trump. Probably if you did a poll of Republicans right now, he would be the most popular elected official in the country. 49 states don't know who Ron DeSantis is. They've never heard of Ron. He's a governor of Florida. What the hell do they know about Ron DeSantis? They know two things, one of which is he's pretty confident. Florida's numbers are way better than people ever thought they would be, including people who might be sympathetic because Florida has so many old people and all of that. And the media hate him. And, and he got he his schools all... open. He got his schools open and kids in school yeah. sooner than right. a lot of other states. Yeah. And they never closed. And remember, the beaches were open. He had this policy of isolating COVID, you know, populations in COVID danger while letting everybody else go about their daily business, which was hard on people because, of course, it meant that old, you know, old, old people were isolated in nursing homes and couldn't see their families. But it's not as though people in nursing homes could see their families in other states either. Uh, so it went pretty well, and people know that. And they also know that the media are trashing him. And you want to put those three together, and if they don't understand that they are turning DeSantis into a national figure who has demonstrated now over three or four years in public life that he is an exceptionally able and adept of all the politicians who leapt on the Trump bandwagon, which he did in 2018. He made the most slavish Trump commercial anyone has ever. Go look at it. It's Even if you love Trump, it's got to be cringe-inducing to watch this horrible you know, sycophantic horror that he produced in order to get people on his side. He wins the election, and what does he do? He goes pretty non-ideological. Pretty non-ideological. I mean, he's done some culture war stuff in the 2020, 2021, but his idea was, I'm going to show that I can govern this state. And he did stuff on the environment, he did stuff on beaches, he did stuff before COVID. And his poll numbers were 
astronomical in Florida before COVID. I mean, in 2019, he was like at, I don't know, 65, 70%, something like that. Uh, he won only by, I think, a point and a half. Uh, he is an able, clever, smart, and educated guy. Yeah. He's also good. Uh, this is very important for, for Republicans. Um, he's very good at confronting the media aggressively when they go after him um, in, in a way that excites them and um, does himself um, some good. Uh, even they, they, you know, 60 Minutes chopped up what he said in response. But if you, you can see the full response out there and, you know, every, everyone on the right has seen it. Um, it's very effective. I mean, what he did in confronting... Um Sorry, I can't remember her name. One sec. Uh, uh, Sharon Alfonsi. It's really exciting not to know the names of mainstream reporters. Like, I don't. what do we need to know their names? Uh, anyway, Sharon Alfonsi, he said, you are, prof- you, are, you are throwing a fake narrative at me. I'm going to stand here and explain to you what happened with this and that and the other thing. And she gives him a couple of sentences, and then she says something like, I'm alleging a pay-for-play, Governor. And he's like, yeah, I know you are. You can allege anything. You know, I'm alleging that Sharon Alfonsi murdered three people. I mean, you know, what? Do, you know, it's like you can allege till the cows come home. that uh, You're saying that you have an allegation on the air of a network newscast is actually not only uh, is not, a, a, you know, uh, doesn't exculpate you from responsibility from laying out a false charge Whereas Christine said, she says, our records show that Publix gave him gave his campaign committee $100,000. Your records show? Click on, got, you know, uh, yeah, like the, the March report of the Fed, of the campaign. Public, Publix gives to all state officials. They understand how that works. I mean, they're a huge corporation in Florida. They give money to lots of politicians in Florida. That's, that's not pay for play. That's how our politics works. Yeah, it's it, it is pay for play, the, by the way. It is. And this is, we have to understand that. But it's like, it's like this story that was in the New York Times on Saturday about the Trump campaign impoverishing givers. You you, you know the story? So there's a story about how you get an email from Trump in September saying, I need money or, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to take over America and somebody gives $500. And then uh, as the months go past, $500 keeps getting taken out of his checking account and he's mad and the Trump campaign is impoverishing everybody, uh, cheating people. It's the most horrible story in the world. So my friend Jonah Goldberg sends me the story and says, what do you think? And I said, I mean, it looks pretty bad. I just want to know whether Democrats don't do it either. And then Logan Dobson, a Republican consultant, went and looked at the Act Blue or whatever it is that Biden had. And it's exactly the same thing where the the thing that says make this a biweekly donation, the setting is set to click yes. You have to go affirmatively go in and turn it off in order not to make the donation. So this is actually sleazy, disgusting best best practices of horrible (laughs) campaign finance monsters who are filth and scum, and they work for both parties. They are filth. They are stealing from poor people who don't know what the hell they're doing, and they're scum, but they're not just Trump scum. They're Biden scum. They're everybody scum. And this is the story of the Ron DeSantis story. Like, really? Seriously? Somebody gives 
How much is the Florida governor's race going to cost? $50 million? $60 million? How much is DeSantis going to spend? He got $100,000 from Publix? That's it? Like, how? talk about, you know, chintzy. It's not like they give him $5 million. They give him $100,000. Like, that's enough to, you know, like, to, to get 10, you know, 3D printing machines, you know, for your campaign offices, which I guess they're going to need because now it's 2022. So if you had Xerox, you're going to have need 3D printing machines, probably to print, you know, ballot boxes or something. Anyway. So that's my that's my that's my rant, uh, and I'm gonna uh, pull back for a second because uh, I want to uh, tell you guys about our friends at the Bonson Group. <clears throat> Remember, I've been uh, talked to you about them before. These two great internet products, the DCToday.com and DividendGafe.com, produced by the Bonson Group, uh, <clears throat> just celebrated its eighth anniversary as a bi-coastal financial management and services firm with. Uh, Two and a half billion dollars under management, which I think is seven or eight times what they got when David Bonson left Morgan Stanley to start his group. He is having great success with his clients and his client base, understanding the interplay and the mix between politics, policy, the Fed, Washington, state officials, taxation policy, regulatory policy, and how they all affect the market and your investing. So Daily, he tells you what's going on at the dctoday.com, and weekly, he provides his supple analysis at dividendcafe.com. Please go look at these, and if you have money to invest, consider the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so we're talking about COVID vaccine rollout, and I now and, and we're talking about bad press and the way the press is handling things. And once again, we find ourselves on the horn of: uh, Are we taking crazy pills all weekend? There are stories, news stories, and things going on that make you think that you are taking crazy pills. Because on the one hand, you have facts, you have unassailable facts, numbers, hard numbers, things that we are seeing. And on the other hand, you have this weird, sleazy, bizarre thing where the intimations are that everything is still terrible and getting worse. And the cognitive dissonance is enough to make everybody want to go jump in the river, as far as I can tell. Abe, talk to me about the death toll from COVID, if you would. So I check a few figures, different figures every day, have been doing so for over a year. Um, one of which is at the end of the day, I look at the the daily um, infection rate in the U.S., the, the the number of new daily infections and the new daily deaths. Um, yesterday, uh, the U.S. recorded 270 deaths from COVID. Now, every Sunday is uh, the lowest uh, number of, of every week. Um, so it's, it's always going to be lower than the day surrounding it. But... 270 is the lowest daily death recording in over a year in since March of last year. Um, there have been a year's worth of Sundays. Um, and it's not like this is a, a total statistical outlier. Uh, the deaths have been dropping week over week. Um, so we are, this is, this is actually kind of an extraordinary milestone. Um, this is not, this is not the lowest since, uh, since the fall surge, lowest since the summer. Low, this is the lowest since M- March of last year. 
Right, since the beginning of the pandemic. So, which would suggest the ending of the pandemic. I mean, the logic is, if the pandemic doesn't really follow a bell curve because it went up and down, as it begins, the death toll starts to rise from zero to whatever it is. And then as it's going to end, the death toll is going to go down uh, from, you know, 3,000 or wherever it was at the most, that horrible point. 4,500 in January. In January. Okay, so here's the point, which is you're mentioning 200. What was it? to, to 270. Yes, 270. Okay, so the day before or the Friday, which is a high date number, mm-hmm. it was 961. But that that was, I think, the fourth consecutive day that the death toll had gone under 1,000. Okay? All Now, the weird thing is this. New cases on April 2nd. The four were sixty-eight thousand, a fourteen-day change of nineteen percent. The new deaths, nine hundred and sixty-one, a fourteen-day change down thirty-one percent. Now, let's just think about what this means, okay? Because it's not like the new case load number, which of course we're told uh, is the implication is that these variants are now really biting. So the new case number is going up, and the death toll is vertiginously dropping, and all we care about is the new case number. Now, Christine's son, (laughs) on Friday, made the point that the New York Times was complaining about the threat of exposure to COVID, right? Do I have that right, Christine? Yes, that's correct. He noted that the the wording change from cases, actual documented cases, documented hospitalizations, and documented deaths, to look at the new risk of exposure to a virus, which of course, as a logical 14 year old, he thought, but that's not, that's a different thing we're measuring now um, for fear mongering purposes. (laughs) Right. Now look, so I'm pushing this not because I want to, you know, I'm certainly not making light of the tragedy of somebody dying of COVID, but if a a couple hundred people a day are going to die of COVID, uh, the, the pandemic is over. Um, we 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 are not we are not looking to get to case numbers of zero and a death toll of zero to declare the pandemic over people to be able to take off their masks and life to resume as normal at 100% capacity at stadiums and movie theaters and things like that we're not that is not the level of expectation that we are talking about here it shouldn't be it can't be so Somehow we are shifting into a a mode in which our public health officials are demanding, and not just them, but some of our political players like teachers unions, which we can get to in a minute, are demanding a kind of zero threat, zero numbers, zeroing out before life can go to normal. And then there was a story in the New York Times, I think Saturday, virus variants threaten to draw out the pandemic, scientists say, okay? So this is what happens the day that they pu- publish that you know the de- they 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 themselves have collected the stats that say that the death toll has been under a thousand per day for four or five days, and they're about to report that there were two hundred and seventy uh, cases uh, on a, on an individual day. "Quote: At the moment, most vaccines appear to be effective against the variants, but public health officials are deeply worried." Notice the use of the adverb there, deeply. Like that wouldn't have to be there. But if you just say they're worried, it's not alarmist enough. So they're deeply worried that future iterations of the virus, okay? We're not now talking about the variants that we have now. 
okay? We're talking about future variants that we don't know of the existence yet may be more resistant to the immune response. Maybe. These are non-existent variants that have not emerged that may be more resistant. Or you know what? Maybe they'll be less resistant. Maybe they'll be five times less resistant. This may require Americans to queue up for regular rounds of booster shots or even new vaccines. Oh, no. Oh, my God. So we now have a system in place to deal with vaccines and producing vaccines that may be able to respond to this. Oh, no, people may have to get another shot. They just described the the seasonal flu. This is exactly what the seasonal flu. Every year, it's different cocktail of of vaccine mix they have to make to try to get it right. They don't always get it right. Some years, they're more effective, some less. Some flu seasons are more deadly than others. They've just described seasonal flu, but with, as you say, alarmist language. Well, right, because right. you don't. It's not like we, we. It's not like we don't go out w- unless there's a zero death toll from the flu. I mean, people do die from the flu, you know, throughout throughout the flu season as well. How ma- What kills more people in the United States than anything else? I believe car accidents. I believe the number one death toll in the United States. I thought it was heart attacks, but yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, but I mean, let's, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, but let's say, I think it's like 40,000 people get killed a a year in car accidents. So are people then not supposed to drive? I mean, we're talking about a death toll that's lower. Are we supposed to not drive? Okay, so we have mitigation strategies for car accidents, right? We have airbags, we have seatbelts, we have speed limits, and we have mitigation strategies for COVID now, largely involving a vaccine that apparently is spectacularly successful and should let lead people to a sense of security that their lives are going to go back to normal. There's a quote that follows that paragraph I just read, that I fisked as I was speaking it, that follows that paragraph in the New York Times. Uh, quote, we don't have evolution on our side, said Devi Sridhar, a professor of public health at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Quote, this pathogen seems to always be changing in a way that makes it harder for us to suppress. Really? First of all, pathogens always change. Second of all, they change in different directions. Yes, we have the Brazilian variant and we have, and we're hearing that this stuff is all very dangerous. But, you know, what we don't know, because we don't need to measure it, is ways in which the pathogen is breaking up, which is probably what explains what is going on in Texas, which could be the front page story in the New York Times. Only guess what? It isn't, because it doesn't conform with some sick narrative that we are being forced to swallow. Because in Texas, where the mask mandate was dropped at at all, all public rules you know, state-mandated rules were dropped in favor of individual businesses and people doing what they thought was safe, right? Cases in Texas have continued to drop. And as our friend Alapundit said on Twitter, why people are still wearing masks voluntarily and mobility data suggests people aren't traveling vastly more than they did a month ago. So guess what? Texans who are supposedly Yahoo with their guns and Neanderthals, even COVID Neanderthal monsters, are acting prudently because the because the because the pandemic isn't quite yet over. So they're still wearing masks. 
And they're not, you know, they're not traveling as much as they might otherwise. The way that everyone said, oh, Texas, it's another experiment in mass murder. The way Georgia was an experiment in mass murder, according to Amanda Mull of The Atlantic, who still has her job. She still has her job, even though she said that uh, Governor uh, Brian Kemp of Florida was engaging in mass murder by by not having restrictive lockdowns. It's nice to know that you can still maintain your job when you when you say things like that and publish articles like that. Okay, so can I can I talk yes. about Dr. Michael Please. Osterholm? Please. Uh, he's an epidemiologist. Dr. Michael Osterholm went on uh, Fox News Sunday yesterday and and announced that uh, he was also he was part of uh, Biden's transition team is uh, on the advisory board. He said that we are now seeing a fourth wave of infections in the U.S. Um, and that uh, what is al- al- most alarming about the fourth wave, he says, they are now, as kids, getting infected at the same rate that adults do. They've very eff- they're very effective at transmitting the virus, kids now. So, not, not, so Osterholm not only sees um, the, the, the viruses as, as being sort of, you know, we're in, we're, we're, we're in the midst of, of a new spike. This is worse. This is because now our worst nightmare that 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 kids can get it the same way adults can get it is happening, according to him. I haven't seen this now. Before. Can I can I can I tell you why I know that this is not true? I have kids. I have three kids. My kids are 10, 14 and 16. My kids go to school. My kids have friends. My kid. This is not anecdote is not just, you know, like there is no wave of covid the kids at my 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 kids go to two different schools with two different kinds of populations there is no there is no wave of covid sweeping their schools and we're talking about kids who travel who go away on weekends who aren't like sitting you know they're i think they're all being socially distanced and all this that's number one number two statistically we now know that 105 million Americans have gotten at least one shot of the, right? That's 33% of the country has now been vaccinated. Everybody who has been vaccinated is over the age of 30. Now that's about to end, right? That We're about to see the wave of people between 60 and 30 get vaccinated. So I don't, I, you'd have to like do the math in your head, right? But so the population between the ages of 30 and 100 is I don't know what it is. Let's say it's 235 million. It's probably a little lower, but let's say it's 235 million. We're getting close to half of them having been vaccinated at least once. So if you're going to measure COVID cases, you are now talking about people, okay? You're talking about people in the uh, excuse me, I, I got the numbers wrong because it's not 30 to 100 because we haven't hit the 30 thing yet. No, you have hit the 30 thing yet. But okay, let's say again. So the number of cases of kids is by definition going to be percentage wise higher than it has been because nobody over 50 is going to get COVID anymore because most of them have been vaccinated or the vast majority of them have been vaccinated. So as a percentage, Kids are kids percentage is going to rise in aggregate, but that doesn't mean anything because it's all relative. 
And we still, I'm going to look this up, but you guys talk. I want to look up what the death toll is for people under 18. That's, um, so somebody, somebody take over from my rant here. Well, it, no, it's just, I mean, it's just astonishing because it was just a sheer assertion that he didn't, he didn't cite some, uh, study or some, um, analysis of the vaccine. It's, it's, he says it's of the, of the UK variant has, is, is now, um, such that it, it, it makes kids, um, as susceptible and um, as likely um, transmitters of the, of the virus. Okay. I only have as of March 17th, 2021 from the ages. And this is by the way, interesting because it means there's been an adjustment downwards since the last time I looked at this ages zero to 17 total deaths from COVID-19 out of a total of 517,575. 226. I don't even know that you can come up with a a, a uh, percentage total low enough to even capture 226 out of 517,575. I mean, if I tried, it would be one of those points where you say it's 0.0001%. And then, no, no, you can't say 0.01% because that would be to adding two more zeros. So it's only 0.0. whatever it is, it's non-existent. Kids don't die from COVID. Kids don't die from COVID. And the danger that people were worried about, right, was that kids would get it. They wouldn't be asymptomatic. They'd have it. They wouldn't know. And then they would give it to older people. Except by the end of this month, everybody in America who wants to be vaccinated will be able to have been vaccinated at least once, apparently, And now we get into the weirder part of this story, which is when we are down to vaccine surplus, which will be when we know who, what, what the level of vaccine hesitancy is. When you can get an appointment that day, if it's eight o'clock in the morning, you can go somewhere at nine and get a COVID shot, right? That's, that's when it's freely available. We're then going to know how many people are in fact vaccine hesitant what is our public responsibility toward people who are vaccine hesitant at that point? What, what responsibility does anybody have to wear a mask, to socially distance, to do anything like that? If we now have a system at, we now know of a certainty that there's this 30% of people who are like, I'm good. I'm going to now, I think by the way, we already have our social responsibility, which is that all the evidence suggests that the vaccines interfere with transmission and therefore we can do whatever we want because we're not going to give it to somebody who doesn't have it and won't get the vaccine. Nonetheless, are we still going to be hearing this garbage about how there's a fifth surge coming? Yes. Um, We are. But just just to be fair, if it's 30% of the public, that's absurdly high. That's far too high. And it is valid to be concerned about the extent to which this virus is still circulating in a dramatically large population like that, which could still create a variant that outsmarts the, the mRNA vaccine or the J&J vaccine. That's the sort of thing that is legitimately concerning. And public health officials should be worried about that sort of thing. Fine. Uh, you, you may, and you should too. I mean, the extent to which these people are being selfish, I agree. The extent to which they think they're immune from their social responsibilities, I agree. But that's not something that we shouldn't be worried about. 
Okay, that's a good answer. That was my devil's advocate question that I that you answered correctly, which is, of course, why these people are villains and not victims. That is why we're going to be in a position in which we can say, you are bad. You are a bad person. But the thing is, it's not. You are a bad person. Every step you take outside without the vaccine marks you as a bad person. Everybody else took the risk, if it is a risk of getting the vaccine, so that you can wander around and possibly extend the life of the pandemic out of your hesitancy. That does not, you you do not get social credit for your behavior if you are interfering with herd immunity. But I don't think it's going to be 30%. We have no indication that it's going to be anywhere near 30%, which is why it would be absurd to maintain these sort of restrictions and the and even just the social covenant of shaming people for being outside because somebody else might be, you know, vulnerable. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near that high. The, the people who want the pandemic in perpetuity would want it to be that high, but we have no indication based on the current demand that we're seeing in, in the adult population that is going to be approaching that high. If we're in the, you know, the low teens as a percent of population who are still resistant to getting this vaccine, many of whom are probably located in urban areas that are un, or rural areas that aren't dense, that don't present the same risk as being in a more densely populated area, then you should see these restrictions melt away because it would just be neurotic. There, there is though something to this idea that the shift, the shifting focus on children now, because that is linked to a very powerful political constituency, namely the teachers unions, which don't want to reopen schools in the fall. And you know, the, ha- more than half of schools are back and open in kind of regular, a regular way. About thirty percent are still hybrid, and uh, and you know, f- fourteen or fifteen percent are still totally virtual. And there's no reason for that at, at this point, given given uh, vaccination. We but need I think to. Until- we know what we need to. We need to continue this conversation, but I got to do. I got to do another spot. Sure. But we're, we're going to come right back, okay? Because look. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private, and then the internet came along. And now if you think about everything you've browsed, searched, watched, tweeted, that data are being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure, to keep your data private when you go online, turn to ExpressVPN. There are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data, and they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of those data points is your IP address, and that's what ExpressVPN blocks from view. It reroutes your connection through an encrypted server. Your IP address is masked. So every time you log on, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN users, and third parties can't identify you so easily and harvest your data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button and get protected. So if, like me, you believe your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Okay, Christine, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, it's fine. I I, uh, I was going to mention a Washington Post story over the weekend where uh, Education Secretary Cardona was asked, can parents expect their kids to return to school in the fall? Like, basically, we've written off this year. What about the fall, right? We can all go back. And he was noncommittal. His response was noncommittal. He said, well, it's a leap because we don't know what we don't know. 
we don't know what we don't know. And that's why what Abe was saying, this uh, epidemiologist was claiming is so worrisome because what I think we are going to see among entrenched teachers unions in, in blue states where they have a lot of clout and sway over elected officials is an effort to claim that it's not safe till every child is vaccinated. They will make this claim. They're already talking about it on union message boards. Um, you know, we have seen uh, efforts repeatedly by teachers unions in places like Los Angeles and New York and D.C. to constantly shift the goalposts. Uh, they're using now, you know, Americans with Disabilities Act restrictions to, to try to sway their uh, superintendents to not let them return to work ever if they don't want to, like to have a permanent accommodation for virtual learning. Um, it's going to continue unless someone, and by someone, I certainly mean the president with his bully pulpit, even though he doesn't control individual school policies, to start talking about this now, before the summer break, before the fall, and say, we need to get every child back in the classroom. There's no more excuse making to be had. But he won't because he is one of his largest donors are the teachers unions. But it is in their best interest to do so because it's becoming, I mean, at least the the theoretical fear of a variant that infects children and then becomes transmissible to adults is conceivable. What we're seeing now is just a really naked shakedown, uh, particularly in, in big urban centers with uh, democratic governance, thinking specifically about the Los Angeles system where you have now the teachers union demanding that educators have access to free state provided childcare before we get back into the, into the classroom. And I guarantee you, if they got that, it'd be something else. At some point, they, this is going to become a political liability for Democrats. Republicans don't share any of this. They don't have one fingerprint on the, on the school systems being continually shut down. And, you know, we've seen backlashes in places like New York city where it's manifesting in the mayor's race in something that is really frustrating to the far left. Uh, and that's not going to stop. Look, um, Biden is too busy boycotting the state of Georgia to actually do something about ensuring that these um, forces of evil, actual forces of evil that are attempting to make the claim that the thing that they do for a living, which is educate children, they are no longer obliged to do unless they are given goodies and benefits and things and new workplace rules that make their lives even easier than they are for people who work 10 months out of the year and not 12, the way a lot of other people have to work 12 months out of the year. So why not make it work no months out of the year? I mean, that is the kind of weird, and you know, honestly, uh, you know, I've no, I have no patience or sympathy with it. This has been, you know, 40, 50 years of, you know, my, my own sense of, distaste with uh, public sector unions and particularly with teachers unions, but not only with teachers unions. Um, if you are a supporter of the, uh, of the, of the union movement and particularly the public sector union movement, you need to sit down and think long and hard about what you think should be happening over the next couple of months, because just as the behavior of the big labor unions in the 1950s and 1960s destroyed them, destroyed them as political forces and destroyed them as workplace forces after 30 years of almost uninterrupted political and social success. The UAW, the Teamsters, and mostly the Teamsters, uh, less the AFL-CIO, but, but, but in different ways, their corruption the uh, political influence that they uh, subjected, the behavior of their leadership and all of that 
took them out. They were they were on the verge of having a plurality of the workforce in the United States unionized. We're now down to fewer than I think. I don't know, 15%, 10%. I don't know what the number is if you take out public sector unions. It's very low, and it was largely because uh, they were corrupt and people, they turned it from good guys into bad guys. And there was a weird alliance. Like, uh, they were they were disliked by small businessmen and people like that, and they were disliked by leftists uh, who believed that they were, you know, contributing to public delinquency and, you know, corrupt sta- sta- urban corruption and stuff like that. The public sector unions, what is what is going on in the behavior of the teachers unions, has the ability and capacity to destroy their political and social effectiveness that has been almost untrammeled, right? It is teachers are heroes. They're heroes. They're, they're educated. We need to pay them more. We need to do this. We need to do that. Go. I don't know how much more patience the American people are going to have for the idea that teachers should have free private health, free childcare, and they don't. And every teachers- every Republican in every congressional district in the midterm election should run against the teachers unions. They should have advertisements that show kids suffering. They should show the suicide rates, the mental health crisis, the educational failures. It doesn't matter if they're in a, a big union state or not. Show what these policies did, because the unions are absolutely you're right, John, 100 percent tied to the Democratic Party. This is not a the Republicans have right here a very, very good, strong wedge issue, and they should use it because those suburban voters who didn't like Donald Trump also don't like the teachers unions right now. And they should use that to their advantage. I'm just saying that in a, in a, sorry, as, a, as a secular effect over time, there is a degradation, the possibility that, as I say, they turn into the Teamsters and people don't understand because it's so long ago. How the Teamsters, who were, you know, the, the, these were the people who worked the hardest in the United States. These were truckers and stevedores and, you know, like people whose backs broke doing the work that they did. And their union, and they were very sympathetic figures, and their union leaders were so disgusting that their union became the an, an emblem of, of corruption and American decay. And suddenly it was not that great to be a teamster anymore. And, you know, we are, I'm just saying like, if you're Joe Biden and you, and your wife is a teacher and everybody's a, everybody's wonderful. Who's a teacher. You don't want to assert you that you, you need a little tough love here. They are not. They are not doing things that are helpful to them in their long-term interest as actors in American public life, and and by the way, in terms of the reputation of their own profession. I mean, you know, I think. Okay, I, no one has anything to say, so I'm going to talk to you about the X chair. Okay, uh, because. You know how there's a newfound appreciation for having the right bed for those eight hours we spend each day asleep? You know, we used to have any kind of bed, and then you're like, oh, man, what what am I doing? Like, this is eight hours a day. I need to sleep in something more comfortable that will help my back and not kill me. You know, for many Americans, particularly after the pandemic, there's another place we find ourselves are hours, that office chair, and just like that old spring mattress doesn't cut it the way it used to, that rickety old chair won't cut it. For your work day. So if you're not in an X chair, 
The one you got needs to go. The X chair, which they sent me, and as I as I keep telling you, is just fantastic. Its secret is not only its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to my lower back, but now thanks to their new XHMT technology, you can also get heat and massage therapy while sitting at your desk. <clears throat> Goes right to your core, increases blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. It has even four massage settings and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore instead of my old uncomfortable office chair. Now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury superpower of office chairs. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, do we have anything left to complain about and go crazy and whine? And Well, Major League Baseball, but that's another big topic, so. Right. Um, so uh, let, let's ask the, let me ask you this question. So uh, baseball decides to move the all-star game out of Atlanta, right? Is this a good move or a bad? Like, let, let's say, let's say you're, you're, you're major league baseball. Have you done the prudent thing or have you unleashed, you know, have you unleashed the same phenomenon that tanked NFL audiences for two years after submitting to Colin Kaepernick and all of that stuff? What do you, what do you think? No, it's a terrible move. It's a very bad, short-sighted move predicated on activism within the press <clears throat> against this Georgia law that is pretty much untethered to all the facts on the ground. And I have a piece that's going to go up on the Commentary Magazine website very shortly about this, but the press is very nakedly advocating for um, economic repercussions for the state of Georgia predicated on a lie. Um, the notion that this a bill does what people say it does, that it's essentially de jure racial segregation, is unsupported by the text of the law. Um, Joe Biden has been uh, disseminating a variety of flat, naked untruths about this thing. The idea that you can't get water at these polling stations, for example, is simply not true. You can self-serve. You're not allowed to, dem- to distribute gifts as a volunteer or a group, including consumables. That's not new. That's not weird. But the New York Times has been lobbying businesses nakedly to, to boycott. Uh, Hollywood entertainment reporters have been doing this. And then this Major League Baseball thing resulted as um, was a result of essentially a misquote um, by Major League Baseball Players Association director Tony Clark, who told the Boston Globe on March 26th that he was, quote, very much aware, unquote, of this law and the, and the desire to see the state boycott. And he said, quote, if there's an opportunity to, we would look forward to having that conversation, unquote. Very, not very definitive statement. That was transformed by ESPN sports anchor Sage Steele into her, her quoting Clark saying, quote, that he would, quote, look forward to discussing moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta when he was, she was interviewing Joe Biden, to which Joe Biden responded, yeah, that's great. Also, quote, this is Jim Crow on steroids, what they're doing in Georgia and 40 other states. So when the president of the United States says this is what he wants a private industry to do, the pressure upon you becomes pretty substantial, especially if you're a major firm like MLB, 
there's a, you, you have to maintain your ties with the, the administration. They didn't have very much choice at that point, but to accede to the demands of the president of the United States. In defiance, I think, of just about all logic, all the facts associated with this law, and also the fan base. I mean, you're also talking about now people like Stacey Abrams, Senators uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, all of whom have said, please don't boycott my state. This isn't good for me. This isn't good for us. This isn't good for the Democratic Party, wink, wink, in the state of Georgia, which is on the, the precipice of ascendancy, but isn't there yet. And... Um, Yes, it will have sort of, a, it will catalyze a backlash among people who are far more invested in sports than the, the, the activist left. But the activist left is not the audience for, for, for professional athletics. I, I have to say, though, I, I mean, I, I, I suspect you're right. Yet there's something about um, the claims that, well, okay, I'm, I, I don't watch sports personally, but sports fans who say in response to this, this, you know, professional sports activism, I'm done with football now. I'm done. So long baseball. I'll never watch you again. Kind of reminds me of people who say they're moving out of the country. If someone gets elected, um, I, I, I think they're too invested. Do they really turn away from this sort of lifelong preoccupation with a game? I mean, over the course of the year 2020, we saw dramatic declines in viewership across the board in sports in a year in which no one had anything else to do. Um, right. Well, we've seen, because they have became yeah. just another extension of the tiresome political news cycle. I, I, I am, I have more sympathy with Major League Baseball than you guys do. I think. Not that I'm sympathetic to anybody pulling out of Jordan. I think. Had the game gone on in Atlanta in July or whenever it takes place, two-thirds of the news stories and the coverage would have been, how are the players feeling? Shouldn't the players boycott? Maybe the players... After all, you make the All-Star team. doesn't mean you have to play in the All-Star game. Who cares if you play in the All-Star game? Don't go. Don't go to Georgia. Maybe they shouldn't. Two or three of them decide not to go, and they don't go, or more than that, and all this. And then the whole, whatever the game is, which is just an exhibition, popularity exhibition contest anyway that doesn't mean anything, turns into something else. So they headed it off at the pass. But neither of us are disagreeing disagreeing about that. But what you're describing is an artificial, inorganic pressure from the press as opposed to the consumers of this product. I totally agree with you, and I am saying that what's interesting here is how easily, how easy it is now, because of social media in particular, to make a company say the easiest form, the easiest way that I can get out of whatever box I find myself in is to is to sue for peace. Like, it's not worth it. Everybody will forget this even happened. I'll say I'm sorry, and it'll go away. So where are they going to put the All-Star game where the voting rules are actually better than Georgia? Because <laughs> in York. Delaware, New, How about York, New York, no, New, New York's York. are worse. Like, I mean, this How is the irony. the irony. That was what Brian the- Kemp's argument <laughs> I was, know. that New York has worse voting laws. Um, By the way, the other interesting thing I wanted to But I just briefly, run, John, yeah. before you go there, the, the pressure is resistible because we've seen it resisted. Because when Donald Trump used to try to do this stuff, it was laughed off. 
more than laughed off. In fact, it was attacked as being an assault on the, you know, the independence and sovereignty of private actors. Uh, Joe Biden is wielding cultural power here in a way that no Republican ever could more effectively than any Republican ever could. And the people who were so concerned over it two minutes ago now think it's glorious. Right. Well, okay. So you're mentioning, so you're talking hypocrisy, which is always a which is always the most irritating thing of of all things. I, I agree with you. Anyway, we uh, we should probably uh, we should probably get going because you guys have listened to us for uh, more more than long enough, and we're very great, grateful that that you have. Hope you had a wonderful Easter. Go to merch.commentarymagazine.com. Those mugs that we told you about last week, the keep the candle burning mugs, 20 bucks for a mug. They're going like hotcakes. We have limited supply. We don't have much left. If you want them, go there now. Go there in the next day or two because we're running out. We got to reorder and it takes weeks. And who knows? Maybe we won't even reorder them because, you know, why should we? Like, you're not subscribing enough. So maybe if you also give us some subscriptions, maybe we'll reorder some mugs. You need to subscribe is more important than getting the mug. But if you're a subscriber, get the mug. And if you're not a subscriber, subscribe and buy the mug. And then you'll both have a subscription and a mug. That's all I'm saying. Merch.commentarymagazine.com. For Abe, Christina No, I'm John Pothortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>